My name is Joanna Bewley, and this is my smoke story. I chase the smoke of control, independence, and self-reliance. For as long as I can remember, I have been a person who is very independent, wanting to prove that I can do things on my own without help because I am in control of my life. I have wrestled with God on this throughout my life and can look back on many instances in which I had a plan, but God gently, and sometimes not so gently, showed me that his plan was much better. Slowly, I have learned to be grateful for a God who is both sovereign and good. Most recently, I realized that my desire to control my life and do things on my own is total vanity when in January of this year, my husband was diagnosed with recurrent stage three testicular cancer while I was eight months pregnant with our fourth child. <laughs> if there was ever a situation that could show me that I ultimately do not control my life, this one has been it. From January on, nearly all of my plans for my life all that I envisioned this season and even this ordeal would be seemed to crumble around me. Sorry, I have to stop shaking. <laughs> Plans of a healthy, vibrant husband, partner, and father as our family grew and dynamics changed. Plans of a sweet and self-sufficient homeschooling season with my oldest daughter. Plans of standard chemotherapy that ended with a rare hypersensitivity reaction and subsequent inpatient high-intensity chemotherapy, which I could rarely be a part of. I just gotta pause. Uh, plans of a beautiful home birth that ended in a very scary emergency C-section. All I had planned for and tried to control was gone. Once again, and in the biggest way to date, I had to face those difficult questions that come when all of my control and self-reliance is taken away. Is God good? If I surrender to his will, will I truly have peace? Can I trust him? And though at times I felt like I was being given an unbearable burden, I can tell you today that yes, God is good. Yes, he does care for me. Yes, I can trust him, and when I do fully, he allows me peace and even joy. I know these things because as I faced this trial and continue to face it, and I choose to trust that what I know of God is greater than what I feel about these circumstances, God has shown up. He has made a way. He has shown me that he would never leave or forsake me, that he will take care of me. There have been so many times this year that God answered prayers immediately, taking care of my perceived needs and holding dear the desires of my heart. He used an incredible community of believers locally and worldwide that came around us, removing many burdens, providing comfort, love, and support. God gave understanding and peace to my little girls whose hearts were broken by what their daddy faced, yet handled it with maturity far beyond their years. God allowed my husband to be with me when our daughter was born in March, and though it certainly did not look the way that I had planned, God has tenderly removed my grief over that situation and replaced it with genuine thankfulness for what we gained that night. Not just a healthy, beautiful, joyful baby, but a renewed awe in my husband and his love for me. Of course, our greatest prayer has been that my husband, my, my husband, would be healed of cancer, and he is now unexpectedly considered no evidence of disease, which is just about the best phrase I've ever heard. Overall, through this season, I have found that as I humble myself and seek God with my needs and my hopes, he will take care of them. 
I don't have to toil to take charge, to be in control. I simply have to trust in his sovereignty, his goodness, and his many promises of love and care for me. I can list many ways that God gave and provided and answered throughout this ordeal, and he continues to do so. But I have to say that even if God chose a much different outcome for us, I could still be here today praising God because of the hope he has given me through eternal reconciliation with him through my faith in Jesus Christ. It's in that hope that I rest, knowing that when future trials come, I can face those uncertain days because Jesus Christ lives, and it is through him, not my own doing, that I have strength. Thanks. Father God, um, it's been a crazy um, ride with Solomon, um, but what we know of you is um, that just like Joanna said, that there is a ability that we can't even understand that seems just so unheard of, we can rest and we can trust even when there's cancer, even when there's emergency C-sections, even when, Lord, dot, 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 we can trust you. Doesn't always feel right, God, and you know that. You know how we feel but you give us something to counter that. You give us what we can know. And so we thank you that we've gotten to spend all these weeks in truth that we can know. And so, God, we pray today that you will share with us exactly how you want us to walk out of here today to wrap up the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, what do you want us to know? Um, we give this time to you now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when you walked in, you got a little funky, little cool, little heart, right? Everybody get one of these, a couple of them, one or two, whatever. Hold it up if you got it. There you go. They all look different, just like y'all. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make you stay awake till the end because I'm not going to tell you what we're doing until the very end, how you like that. I do want you to keep it close, and I want you to notice that um, at the end of your rows, I think some people dropped some um, Sharpies, and a little bit I'm going to tell you what we're going to do um, but before we get to that, we're going to take a look at this section of Scripture that we looked at this week in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10. Now, moment of truth. How many of you, when you opened up your homework this week, went, oh. <laughs> I so, in a, in a loving, kind way, I wanted to be there with you as you opened it and went, oh, the pages are all blank. Oh, they're all blank. Everything's blank. Um, for people that like to have guidance and control and procedures and process, that would be me, um, that is overwhelming. And for people that just like to free will, and I mean, maybe that was freeing. I'm not sure, but I, I hope that you walked out of um, at the end of this week with this understanding, even if you didn't get to all five days, even if you got to zero days and you just made it here today, amen? I mean, that, sometimes that's a miracle. I hope you walked out of it with this understanding. You can do this. You can open this word and find truth. This word, I heard it explained this week. I thought, oh, I, I need to remember this, right? It's, this is not an old book. This is an eternal book. Amen? There's nothing about this book that is outdated. There's nothing about this book that needs addition. Nothing. Not my clever commentary about dogs on couches or, you know, questions phrased a certain way or any of that. None of that is necessary. And I hope this week 
rather than be frustrated and be fixated on right and wrong, like some of us get. Instead, you understood that you have the power of truth in your hand, on your phone, right? And so if you didn't get a chance to do it, I encourage you to go back and do it and to do that SOAP method. And during the time, the gap in between now and when we end next week and then when we come back in the spring, now you've got this tool, right? You're like, I always wanted to study Job. I don't know why. Don't, I don't recommend it. But no, I'm kidding. I'm joking. It's all truth. Well, then now you've got a tool, right? You sit down with the book of Job, and you, you look at it, and you look at Scripture, and you look at your observations, and you look at application, and then you pray. And then you just sit back and say, what are you showing me? Every week, you know, honestly, this is what's kind of funny. When Don and I kind of concocted this plan when I was writing the study, we both kind of came to the, this, this idea at the same time. We're going to spend the last week freeing our little birds. Go, little birds, and be free and study God's word. But what's funny about it is, you know, every single week, this is essentially what I do before I lecture. I pretty much sit down after I've done my homework, and I sit down and I look at the passages and I pray. And then I read it again, and I pray. And then I read it again, and I'm like, this is, does not make any sense. They're, I am, they're going to fire me so big time. It's not even going to be funny. And then I pray. And God just starts bringing things to life, right? And so then when he does, then I can go, and I, I go as, look at commentaries and read what real smart people have to say about what he was showing me. And it's amazing how God just unfolds this thing. Anybody that knows me and knows what I look like on Tuesday morning, until I get here on Wednesday morning, knows that this method of studying God's word works. Because we so often get reliant, don't we, on somebody else telling me how I'm supposed to study his word. Somebody else interpreting it for me or telling me what it means. We all do it in our small groups too, don't we? I want to know what's right. What's the right answer, Jessica? <laughs> She's never going to sit in the front again. Okay, but I digress. I hope you took the time to do it if you didn't. Now you have something wonderful that you can do over the break is take some time and open up these chapters and read through them with your own eyes, with your own ears. And so what we're going to do today, I, um, it was hard. This was hard for me to figure out how to break down. We covered three chapters. And so I was like, okay, there's no way unless we're all going to hang out here till 3 o'clock and we, nobody wants to do that. I can't break down all of it. So what I did was I just asked God to make it real clear what he wants me to share today. And so that's what I did. So we're going to look at three points today. And we're going we're to go over chapter 7, part of chapter 7. We're going to go over chapter 8. We're going to look at it this way. We're going to talk about wisdom and how wisdom brings balance. We're going to talk about how wisdom exposes wickedness. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the fact that wisdom is a person. Wisdom is a person. Last week, we went through... The certainty of death, right? We talked about unpredictability and uncertainty of life, but then ultimately that through Jesus, that life is a gift, right? And that we remember God. Well, this week we talk about wisdom. Now, when we define the word wisdom, I think I, I, it's funny because um, I don't know how many times I've written this out, but I always have to kind of go back and re-remind myself because I start thinking down this road that wisdom is like, like book knowledge, or wisdom is like this learned thing. But let me, let me remind you of how we define wisdom. We define it this way. Well, I'll first start by defining knowledge. Think about it like this. Knowledge is learned, okay? Knowledge is learned. Wisdom is applying that knowledge. Wisdom is actually applying it. So if I'm going to put together a dresser from Ikea, <clears throat> you can pray for me, 
I get a, I get a user's guide, right? And I can, I can memorize that bad boy. I can get every piece and part, and I can have it all set out, and I can understand that. I can look at it, and I can, I can learn that knowledge. But it don't do me no good until I apply it, right? So you take knowledge and you apply it, and that's what wisdom is. And so when we talk about Solomon being the wisest man, we're not just talking about God gave him a whole bunch of head knowledge. Because ultimately wisdom is so much more than that. That's what wisdom is. It's applying knowledge. Solomon asks for wisdom. God gives him wisdom. And then a bunch of other stuff comes, right, through the wisdom. And then Solomon applied it. And so as we're thinking through this lesson, these three chapters really, really, really hit on wisdom, didn't they? Did you kind of see some of those words bubble up to the top when you were doing your soap method? Did you see certain things that came up that were like, oh, number one, we've seen some of this before, right? A lot of repetitiveness. Number two, he's talking a lot about wisdom, which makes sense. This week, he talks about wisdom and how we are to use that wisdom and apply that to our lives. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. We move to chapter 7 with me in your Bible. When you apply wisdom, you find that balance between good and better is possible. When you apply wisdom, you find that there's a balance. See, wisdom brings balance. In those first 10 verses, he talks about um, how there's good stuff, but then there's better stuff, right? And we, and we can all kind of make sense of that. Like, I don't know about you guys, but when I went through this portion, that's all that stood out to me is better, 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 better. I loved it, except for when I read what the better was, right? I think balance is important, you know, um, in life. This is, you know, important for us to remember that sometimes in, in life, you've got to balance. You can't wear too much gold or you look like Mr. T, right? You, you, can, you can have animal print in your fashion statement. I'm scanning the room, scanning the room. But if you have too much, you look like you're dressed up for Halloween. So we dabble, right? There's a good balance. There's a balance. A seesaw. You got to have balance. Balance is important. In this section of scripture, Solomon takes us to this place of balancing good and better. Seems weird. Better seems easy to understand until you lay it out the way Solomon does. Like, for example, okay, good versus better. This all makes sense. You're going to totally track with me on this part, right? Okay, so like coffee is good, right? I mean, if you say no, then you need to go. No. Coffee is good, but coffee on the porch in Colorado when I got a blanket wrapped around me and I'm looking at the mountains, it's better, right? Better. Or a beach, whatever. Whatever your thing is. Uh, how about this? Babies. Oh, babies are so good. But babies are way better when they sleep through the night and they use the toilet. Amen? Okay. You can always improve upon babies. Pizza. This is funny, right? You can see my life here. Coffee, babies, pizza. Pizza is really good, like maybe almost better than everything. But you know where pizza is the very best? At Joe's, write this down, at Joe's in West Village in New York City. That's where the best pizza is. Pizza's good. Domino's is good and stuff. Joe's is better. This is what he's talking about. However, that makes sense. We all laugh. You know, we think that's, that's cool and stuff. But what about those things that Solomon's talking about, the betters that, that don't feel better, right? Um, stage three cancer, not, doesn't feel better, but he wants what's better, right? 
What about good health, good marriage, good finances? All those things are good, right? But sometimes wounds and scars are better. Yeah? It's hard to look at life the way Solomon is challenging us to look at it. He's telling us very specifically, there are good things. Be thankful for those good things. But sometimes the hard things that we don't understand, the things that Joanna talked about, are for better. It's hard. He's not saying either or. He's saying that we have to find the balance between them both. Right? So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at four different things that he talks about over the course of these ten verses that he, he, he gives us a better version and a good version. Okay? And there's four of them. And the first is this. It's found in verses one through four. And he says this. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. Starting in verse 1, he says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. That does not make sense when we first take a look at it, does it? At first, you're like, say, what? Birthdays are great. Well, it's, it's kind of a play on words here. This is what you need to know. It's interesting. When he talks about the name and the ointment thing, the two Hebrew words that he uses there are only two words apart. It's like the, the, the Hebrew word for name is Shem and the Hebrew word for ointment is Shemen. And basically what he's trying to say is that a name lasts and it endures. Ointment is temporary. It's temporary. Ointment here is used as a perfume. Okay, we talked about that last week a little bit. Remember Mary of Bethany in the New Testament. You remember her? Do you remember what, what, why we remember her name? What'd she do? She poured out an offering she anointed Jesus with her perfumed oil, and we read that it, the fragrance filled the house. Do you think the fragrance still fills the house there? No. It was temporary. But what did Jesus tell her? He said, your name will be honored forever. Name is permanent. Ointment, perfume, it's temperamental. I mean, it's this moment in time that goes. That's what he's trying to make us understand he goes on to say this. He takes the two different days and contrasts them, doesn't he? He says in that very first verse, he says, the day of death and the day of birth. One is more better. More better? That's totally not right. Strike that. Erase that, Cody. One is, is better. <laughs> One is better. One is good. He says this, that our name, when you consider that it is everlasting, that it lasts and people remember it and what it meant, that it's given at birth, but it has no meaning yet, right? I mean, names have meaning and stuff, but when I was named, my name, when I was born, nobody knew who I was going to be. But my hope is that on the day of my funeral, that when you stand up here, every one of y'all better be there and y'all better say something nice. I'm just saying right now. But when you stand up, I want you to be able to say that my name meant something, right? And so that's what he's trying to say. He's not saying that, that birth isn't wonderful and a great celebration it is, but the day of death should be a celebration of epic proportion because we stand up and speak of that name and how that person served and loved and went on to eternity, hopefully. Amen? He goes on in verse 2 to say this. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. This is the end of all mankind. And notice this. There's a word that's repeated four times here. He goes on to say, And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. 
and by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Heart. We talked a few weeks ago when he says that word, he's talking about this all-encompassing thing. He's talking about this is your mind, your will, and your emotions, okay? When he speaks about your heart, that's what he's talking about. And so there, there's something to notice there, right? In our observation section of our soap, we observe that there's a word repeated over and over. What does that even mean? The truth is this, um, that laughter, he's, he's saying laughter can be medicine for a broken heart, can it not? Anybody ever come to Bible study and had a bad day and then Lindsay took the mic, right? And you're like, yes, it's going to be a good day. It's good medicine, man. It is. But oftentimes sorrow is what nourishes us and strengthens us, right? We don't like to say that. We don't like to talk about that stuff. But it's true. I mean, Solomon lived it. This is the beauty of the book of Ecclesiastes that I guess I keep getting in my head over and over. We have the wisest man on earth, and he's saying, hey, guys, listen up. I lived it. I, I got to listen. And so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell us that. He doesn't want us preoccupied and being fearful and ruled by the idea that death is coming. He just wants us to be wise. He wants us to apply wisdom in this moment of life that can be scary. I've heard it put this way. I heard a pastor say one time, he said, um, you know, it kind of goes back to that lesson about it takes a funeral. He said, here's the thing. Do I prefer a wedding or do I prefer doing a funeral? Which do I prefer? And he said, you know what? Every day I would say I prefer a funeral. And here's why. I can say the same thing at the wedding that I say at the funeral and nobody hears me. But if I say it at the funeral, everybody is broken and all the things have come off that don't matter anymore, right? And there are ears that are desperate to hear the word of God. It breaks my heart, right? That that's breaks our hearts, but it's truth. Think of a person in your life right now. You don't have to point at her or call her name out. Think of a person right now who has impacted you, who has impacted the way you live your life, the way you want to live your life. Um, the way you're choosing to try to chase after God, who is that person? Like, think about that person for a minute. Just put them in your head for a second. Now, let me ask you this. Why are they the way they are? Did that person impact your life because they had lots of cars in their driveway, they had really great fashion sense, and they never wore too much animal print, and then they also just always looked super, super duper cute? And No, and they cooked good and well and all. no. If you really drill it down, I bet, and ask yourself this, ask that person. If you really drilled it down and asked yourself, why does this person have impact on my life? More times than not, they're going to say, I'm compassionate because I lost my dad when I was 15 years old, and I know how it feels to sit on the front pew of a funeral. So I go to every funeral. Or I love being around children because... I had a terrible upbringing, but somebody came alongside me at my Sunday school when I was eight years old and loved me so well that I came to know Jesus, and that's why I work in the children's program, right? I, I could keep going. I mean, I, I've got a million of them. Do you? You have people in your life that have impacted you greatly, and I, I, would, I would bet that a lot of what makes them who they are is because they have understood that sorrow is greater than laughter. It shapes us. 
You're going to have these moments of sorrow like my friend Joanna has on her timeline. And as composed and wonderful as she is, I have seen the tears of my friend. But I've seen the outcome, right? I'm getting to watch God take these ashes and make it this fertile ground and go, all right, here we go. Now it gets fun. A.W. Tozer said it like this, God cannot use a man until he's hurt him deeply. I don't like to hear that, right? Nobody wrote that down. I didn't see y'all jotting that one down. <laughs> Another quote I love, and I, I post it around my house all, all the time. Never trust a man without a limp. Amen? The people that impact my life are not the people that walk upright and have, have it all together and everything seems perfect. They're the people that are limping. Because oftentimes our limp is the thing that drops us to our knees, not to be cliche, but it's true. How has, is, will God do it with you? How is he going to do that? I don't know. I think Joanna would be the first to stand up here and say she hopes it's not how her life has looked the last year. But you know what? It might be. might be. doesn't change who our God is. Sound doctrine and theological head knowledge doesn't change us. It informs us and it confirms truth. But I, I believe that Solomon is trying to tell us here that trials change us. How we choose to take the wisdom and the experiences and the knowledge that God's given us and apply those to our lives and how we live moving forward changes us. Trials change us. You know what they do? They do these things. Here's what they do. Trials prove who you are. They show what you're really made of. In Matthew 13, 21, we've, we learned that the temporarily rooted people, if they're temporarily rooted in Christ, maybe they're just showing up because it's, it works in the moment. But then when the big stuff happens, they fall away. That's not, that's not real. Are we temporarily rooted? Or are we firmly, foundationally rooted in Jesus so that I can live and stand up here and be like my friend Joanna when the hardest things that you can ever imagine come, I can still stand up here and say God is good. Trials change us by proving us. Trials change us by making us pray, Right? I can think to the worst moments in my life, the scariest things in my life. And you know what I remember first? I was praying. But you know what I don't remember? When I think about the really good moments, I don't think I do the same thing. And I'm ashamed to admit that. Trials can make us pray. Trials can make us trust in someone bigger than ourselves. Right? When we go through things like Joanna went through, she has no choice. She either trusts in a God that has it under control or she lives a life of, 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 of anger and hate and, and being a victim and being frustrated and being hopeless. Those are the choices. Like, that's it. You don't, there's not like a gray. Like, it's one or the other. So you got to make a choice. It makes you trust in someone bigger than you. The other thing that trials do... They change us by creating sensitivity, understanding, compassion. If the person that you named earlier is one of those things, 
I promise you it didn't come just because their lives were easy. It came because it was hard. The most compassionate people I know in my life are the people that God has allowed to be broken into pieces. And when I hear their stories, I'm always like, whoa. But then it makes sense, right? Because they're the ones that come running around with those casseroles. They're the ones that are there, that, that, that provide a ministry of presence when no one else is around. Because they've been broken. Sorrow is better than laughter. The second thing Solomon goes on to tell us in verses 5 through 7 is he says that rebuke is better than praise. Rebuke is better than praise. That is hard and not fun to believe, right? He says in verse 5, starting with verse 5, it says this, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of the, fuel, of the fools. Verse 6, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely, verse 7, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Listen, whenever he talks about um, the crackling of thorns under a pot, I mean, if you've ever been at a campfire, I know some of you have. Kay, where are you? You were this weekend. Um, if you've ever burned thorns, you understand what he's talking about. Like, we can relate to that. If you've ever put, like, brush that burns real quickly, it pops, and it's temporary, and it's really, really loud, and it's really, really cool, and it sounds really fi- uh, campfirey and all that, but then it's done. Um, but he's making the point that when we have fools that speak into our lives, when we have people that are not following after God for their wisdom, that they can be really loud and get a lot of attention, but it's deceptive and it's false. And so he's, he's, he's directing us here to check ourselves. Who are the people that I'm allowing to have truth to speak into my life? Who are those people? Am I allowing people that only say what I want to hear? Or am I allowing those people that are going to come to me and point me in the right direction? The word mad he uses there in verse 7 is, is intended to be like crazy, not angry. So in other words, he's saying the wise are driven into madness when oppression hits. When does oppression hit the wise? Oftentimes it's like, you remember several weeks ago? I know we slept a lot since then, but... Remember I gave that example about how if you're standing up on top of a picnic table and it's harder for me to pull you up on top of it than it is for you to pull me down. Do you remember? Talk about falling into oppression. We can be pulled down so fast if we have fools around us that we're allowing to have a voice and have power over our lives. Who gets your ear? Surround yourself with foolish, godless people and they will tempt you. What are the people that I surround myself with value? How do you answer that question? And, and I'll tell you this. Like I've had a lot of these conversations with my teenagers in my house too. And, and you, you, can always, you can always feel, well, I'm supposed to be a light. I'm supposed to be a light on the hill, salt and light. That's, that is so true. But you can't do that by yourself. If you don't have community If you're not hanging out with people running the same race toward Jesus and you're hanging out with all these other people and you're like, I'm going to pull them up onto the picnic table. I will will tell you from experience, it will not happen that way. They will pull you down so fast. Don Brown, I've said this a million times, and if you've ever been to Bible study, you probably know this. And if you ever meet him, you will probably say this to him. He was my young life leader when I was in high school. And... um, 
I accepted Jesus when I was 15 years old, six months before my dad died, mind you. A thing that God did. But I wasn't living, you know, the way that I think God wanted me to be living. I was living the high school life, right? I was doing the things that I do. Went away to college and he was always, 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 not texting me because by then our cell phones were like this big. We didn't have, um, but he was always checking in with me, right? Always checking in with me. And you know what he would do? He would find a way to see me face to face when I'd come in town from college. And you know what he'd say to me? Any of you remember? He'd look me in the eyes and the first thing he would say was, how's your quiet time? And I would do this. <laughs> and I would avert. I was just like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I, how's your quiet time? And he'd look me in the eyes and ask me that question. Now, he never asked me that question to make me feel bad. You know why he asked me that question? It's because he was a wise man that God put in my life to have impact and influence. And when he would ask that question, I knew that God was asking me the same question. So I have a group of people. We pray together. And you know what? We go up and down in where we are with the Lord. And, and we ask each other all the time, how's your quiet time? Do you have people in your life that are going to ask you that question? If you don't have people in your life that are going to ask you that question, you need to reevaluate the people that are speaking into your life. Amen? Rebuke, praise. How's your quiet time? Not, oh my gosh, you look so cute all the time. You don't need to hear that all because you don't look cute all the time. Okay? That's a fool telling you that. Or your mom. Not a fool, mom. You're not a fool. The third thing that Solomon shares with us through this passage is this. He says, the ending is better than the beginning. The ending is better than the beginning. In verse 8 and 9, he says this, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. I think about weddings and marathons. Weddings and marathons, that's what I think about when I hear that. I'm like, the ending is better than the beginning. Anybody ever run a marathon or any race remotely it, the, where you're moving toward a finish line? Right. Is the ending better than the beginning? Yeah. If you say no, you're lying, totally lying. It was hard. It was hard fought. And getting across the finish line the first time I ran a marathon, you know what I did? I was practically crying. I was for sure crying, practically crawling. But it was the greatest moment of those thousands of hours it took me to get across. Weddings, same thing. Beautiful wedding. Oh, I wanted to find a picture of my wedding. I wanted to put my wedding picture up, but it would be so distracting. My bangs would have really distracted you. <laughs> wedding is such a great beginning. But you know what? I want to be sitting side by side with my husband celebrating our 65th wedding anniversary, talking about how hard life was. Right? Better. It's my grandparents. Better. I'm sure their wedding was precious, but you know what's better is for me to watch them say, oh, it was hard. I wanted to leave all the time. <laughs> but they didn't. But they stuck. Better. He goes on in verse 9 to say this, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry lodges in the heart of fools. Oh, I related to this. There are so many places in my life where I read that and I'm like, angry lodges in the heart of fools. Like, who, who lets that happen? Me. I let that happen. Plenty of angry days I have. Plenty of days where I am mad. And you know why when I really drill it down to say, okay, really, why am I mad right here? You know why it is? I'm mad because God didn't do it right. He didn't do it right. I knew what was right and God didn't do it right. 
And so we let those things get all lodged in our hearts and they take us off course, right? We, we get off course and instead of being patient in spirit, we let anger take control and it absolutely takes us in a place that God does not intend. How are we going to end? How do you cross the finish line? It's more important, I would say, than how you begin. I think that's what Solomon was telling us. And the fourth thing he tells us in chapter 7 in this certain part of scripture is he says this. He says in in verse 10, he says, Today is better than yesterday. Everybody in here is like, yeah, yesterday was Halloween. Today's a lot better over that. They really did totally, they didn't steal my bowl. But they stole my cute little sign that said, please take one. I'm like, not the sign, just the candy. I'm sorry. I was a really bad Halloween person. Um, today, today is better than yesterday. Verse 10, he says this, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Why can't I go back to that day when I was fill in the blank? Anybody? Anybody had that thought? Anybody said the words out loud? Anybody had that prayer in the last, I don't know, five minutes? Do we do that? We do that, don't we? Can we be honest about this? I live a life of why can't I go back to when I was blank? Solomon is saying today is better than that. In other words, I don't like God's process for purifying and strengthening and shaping me. I want to go back to when I was that way. Or I want to remember the good old days, right? It's not unique to us. You know, it's not even unique to Solomon's time. It happens over and over in the Bible. And I always find that so funny. Like I think, oh, I'm the only one that's ever had this thought. And then I'm like, oh, wait, like the whole Bible has the same thought. That's weird. Maybe somebody's trying to tell me something. You look at the Ezra, which I don't often. I will say that right now in full honesty, full disclosure. Chapter 3 of Ezra, here's what you need to know. They were rebuilding the temple. This was the second building of the temple. And and the old guys were, were doing it. And you know what they were doing? They were complaining and crying about the good old days. You know when it happened again? It happened again. Do you remember we've talked a little bit about um, God's people, the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness because God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, right? And he brought them where he's going to take them to this amazing place, like all this amazing stuff. He takes good care of them. And you know what happens in, um, in Exodus 16? You know what happens? They start complaining that they want to go back. They want to go back. Not only do they want to go back to being in slavery, they'd rather go back there and die than be where God has them in that moment. They're talking about the good old days. Sarah Groves, she's a singer and I love her stuff. And she sings a song about the, that whole idea of being in the wilderness. And she says this, I've been painting pictures of Egypt and I've been leaving out what it lacked. The future seems so hard and I want to go back. Do we paint pictures and we leave out the stuff that, that wasn't any good because we just have this image in our mind that it has to be better than it is right now? Yeah, we do that, don't we? But Solomon's telling us that's not applying wisdom. Today is better than yesterday. Why do you want to go back? Why do I want to go back? I asked myself that question, and this is what I found. I found that the reason I want to go back to those days when I was blank is because I want predictability and control, right? I want to be in control of all of that. 
and I am no longer in control. What's telling about what I believe about what matters most, what I think is better, if I, do I think today is better or yesterday is better? Here's what's telling. Ask yourself this, how do I pray? How do I pray? Um, when I'm praying for other people, do I pray for their circumstances in a way that reflects on what came before? Like when my kid wrecked his bike, do I pray, oh God, I just, I just bring him back to healthy. Take him back to where his arm works. Um, Lord, just bring him to that place where he can ride his bike again and, and write and take notes and not, you know, take him back to that place. Do I pray like that? Like, I, I kind of started examining myself. I think I do. I think I pray. I don't pray for what God's going to bring him through and say, even if he never extends his arm again, Lord, even if, take him, take him. I don't pray that. I don't. How do I pray? How do I speak? How do I speak? Do I speak a lot of, hey, remember back when? Do I speak a lot of, um, yeah, back when this happened? Or do I look forward? I have, a lot of, I have a lot of people, and this is not because it's me. It's because all of us. You have people listening to you. You know that? The neighbor that doesn't bring her trash bin up, she's listening to you. She's watching you. She's looking at how you live your life. How do we live our lives? What do we say? What are we living? Do we live in the past or do we live looking forward? I don't, I don't know. That's just a question to ask yourself. How do you see life? Do you see life in light of comparisons? I have a teenage daughter and I was once a teenage daughter. And the thing that I'm constantly sickened by is comparisons breaks my heart. It seems like every hard struggle that she goes through, the root of it is comparison. I'm either comparing myself to her, or I'm comparing myself to her, or I'm comparing myself to that situation, or that outfit, or what I looked like that week, or how high I kicked this week, or all the things, right? Like that's, that's what we do. We as women are super bad at it, which is, is terrible slash wonderful because I can sit with her and go, I get it. I do the same thing. Do I look at life through the lens of comparisons? And the last thing I would ask myself is this. How do I approach other people? How do I approach other people? Hmm. Would people characterize me as a victim, as a complainer, as a know-it-all? How would people characterize me in the way I speak and approach other people? Or do people characterize me as, wow, she trusts God. You know, that's how I think about Joanna. I look at her life and I'm like, oh my word. I, I you know, yeah, I'm not, I'm not there every dark moment. I, I'm not, but I have not heard words of complaint from either one of them. I hear hope and I'm listening. I promise. I'm listening. You have people that you're listening to too, don't you? But remember this, there are people that are listening to you. How do you approach life? How do you see it? Are you looking at life where the former days were better than these? Because that's not wisdom, Solomon says. Applying wisdom to our lives means that there is balance. There are some things that are better. There are some things that are good. We have both. Well, in chapter 8, he moves us on. And I wish I could cover everything in chapter 7. I had all these awesome notes, but, you know, time. Time, right, Lindsay? Time. 
Yes, chapter 8. We're going to scoot on over to chapter 8. We're going to look at another idea that Solomon leaves us with as we're exiting the book of Ecclesiastes. He leaves us with this idea that wisdom exposes wickedness. Wisdom exposes wickedness. When we apply wisdom, it endures even when our understanding doesn't. It's a hard concept. We talked about it in our small group yesterday. We talked about how hard it is. Yeah, God, I get it, but I don't understand unfairness. I don't understand unjust lives and things. I don't understand wickedness. I don't get it. Well, we're not going to get it. How you like that? You can write that down in pen. You can put my name next to it. We're not going to get it. We're not going to get it all. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to do our very best to see what Solomon, through the one shepherd, capital S, wants us to understand about how we apply wisdom to understanding wickedness. Warren Wearsby says this, and you don't need to write it down. Just listen and see what you think about the way he says this. Think about we're, we're talking about wickedness and we're talking about unjustness and unfairness in this world that's hard for us to swallow, okay? He says this, As King Solomon investigates the value of wisdom here, he came face to face with the problem of evil in the world, a problem that no thinking person can honestly avoid. It is not unbelief that creates this problem, but faith. There is, if there is no God, then we have nobody to blame but ourselves or fate or whatever you want to call it for what happens in this world. But if we believe, and we believe in a good and loving God, then we must face that difficult question of why there is so much suffering in the world. Right? That's the problem. The problem with suffering is that you believe in a God that could control the suffering. Amen? If you believe in a nothing then suffering is just what it is. It's a flip of a coin. Tim Keller says it like this. If, theoretically, evil and suffering are a problem for you, then there has to be a big God out there with a plan for everything that happens. Amen? I say that because it's hard for us to wrestle with this, but we need to understand that when we wrestle, that tells us what we believe. Donald Miller in the book Blue Like Jazz, one of my favorite books ever. I read it a really long time ago, so I didn't even go back and try to find where it said this. But one of my favorite parts of the book was when he was talking about um, how he was struggling with a circumstance in his life. It was really a you know, terrible thing, and he was really upset about it, and I can't even remember what it was exactly. But, but his whole, the whole um, section there was like this monologue of him screaming out to God and saying, I don't believe you. You are not real. There is no God that would let this happen. This is not true. You are fake. I'm never going to talk to you again. This is not real. And then a couple paragraphs later, he reminds himself that the very fact that he's screaming out to a God, telling him he doesn't believe in him, shows what he believes. The fact that wickedness exists doesn't take away from the fact that God is big and he can change it if he wants to. Amen? Doesn't change who he is. But how do we approach it? So how do we, what do we do? Like life is unfair. I don't get it. I don't get all the answers. So now what? So how do I live in a world that I can't understand? Well, Three things that, that um, I feel like chapter 8 bring us to. And I'm not going to read all the, the scripture for the sake of time. But verses 1 through 9, he says this. He goes into the whole deal about the king, right? And the king and there's unjust things happening and wicked, you know, succeed and, and the righteous die and all the bad stuff. And we're like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm so sick of hearing this. It's like over and over. Well, welcome to life under the sun. Amen? 
he basically is telling us in verses 1 through 9, we need to respect authority. We need to respect authority. Many different reasons and reactions and relations to how we respect authority. A couple of things, we could approach authority this way. We could be disobedient. We could choose not to pay taxes when we know we got to, right? We could um, desert the whole thing. We could quit. We could give up. We could move to Canada, whatever, right? We could be living in a state of defiance. We could be trying to overthrow the authority in place. Or, or we could choose discernment. And Solomon says that basically in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8. He says this. He says, verse 5, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Ever heard that before? Anybody? Yeah, okay. We've heard that a few times. Although man's troubles lie heavy on him. In other words, he's saying like, you know, there's a moment where you have to just, just, just choose to be discerning and be respectful of authority, even if you don't understand it, even if things are hard, even if it makes you real, real mad. It's hard. It's hard to be a good Christian in the face of corrupt, evil, complicated world. It's real hard. But we can ask him for wisdom in James 1.5. We can ask him for that. And you know what the message says? I love it. It says this. It says, if, if you don't know what to do, ask God. He loves to help. Wisdom asks, I mean, Solomon asked for wisdom, didn't he? We can ask him in these situations. I need to respect authority, Lord, but I don't know how to do it. The second thing he shares with us in chapter 8 is this, about how we understand wisdom exposes wickedness is this. Verses 10 through 14, he says, we need to understand, not accept, note, it's a big difference, understand iniquity and injustice. Understand it. Verse 14 in the message says this. Here's something that happens all the time and makes no sense at all. I love the message. Don't y'all love it? Good people get what's coming to the wicked and bad people get what's coming to the good. I tell you, this makes no sense. It's all smoke. Amen. Mic drop. Solomon. We agree. Doesn't make sense. However, I understand that. I understand that it doesn't make sense. I understand that I live in a world that makes me want for something different. Amen? Like, I, I, this was a big truth that came to me, and it's not like the smartest thing ever, and you're all probably like, yeah, duh, I don't know why it took you so long to understand this. It was like this moment a few years ago where I realized the reason everything wasn't working out perfectly is so that I would yearn for a God that could make things work perfectly, Right? If everything worked perfectly and I had a complete full understanding of everything, of everything that God is, of every reason why bad stuff happens, you know what? I don't even need God anymore. Amen? Doesn't make it. I mean, I know that that may sound like, okay, yeah, fine. You're not in the midst of, of what Joanna's going through. You're right. I'm not right now. But I will be. I will be. And so in the course of trying to do this and figure this out, I've got to understand that there's going to be things that happen that are not fair. And there are going to be evil people that succeed under the sun. So in the midst of it, I have to decide I'm going to be a doer and not a complainer. I'm going to try to change things and not talk about things and people on Facebook and stuff. How do I do that? Well, look for what God's doing and join in. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about that. 
A lot of times we try to overthink things and we sit back and wait for a sign from God and God's going, hey, like totally I'm doing stuff like right outside your door. Just open your eyes and do it with me. Seek his word. Remember we talked a few weeks ago that there are things that are black and white. There are things in God's word that are going to steer you very directly in the course of his will. And then there are some things where you just step out boldly and you say, okay, Lord, I, I think. But seek his word. Pray for action, pray for hope, and ultimately pray for trust. You can pray for change too. I, I highly recommend that. I'm sure it says it in there somewhere. But we got to understand that those things are going to exist until we are with our Lord face to face, and then they won't anymore. The last thing in chapter 8 that he brings up is verses 15 through 17. He brings this up. He says, we need to embrace the mystery of God. We need to embrace the mystery of God. Who loves know-it-alls? Raise your hand. Oh, no, nobody raised their hand. That's weird. Then why are we so bent on know-it-at-all? Why do I want to know everything? Because do I want to enter a conversation with people when we're having this big d discussion about Jesus? Do I want to walk in and be a know-it-all? Because I promise you this, the minute I start know-it-alling all over people, you know what they quit doing? Quit listening, don't they? I've had people say to me in the sweetest, kindest way ever, I love coming to your Bible studies because you just make it seem like, oh, I don't know, like you dumb it down. Like it's so much easier to understand. I'm like, because I am not too bright. <laughs> it's attractive, right? I'm not a know-it-all. I'll be the first to tell you I'm not. But I, I feel like we think we should get to be a know-it-all, right? In Deuteronomy 29, 20, 29, 29, it says this. That there are secret things that belong only to God. And yet Chris wants to know what they are. I need to understand that I, there's going to be mystery in this life. That if I seek to have a full and complete understanding of who God is and his ways, then I am always going to be disappointed and hopeless. Because I'm never going to get it. I mean, I, I don't know what brought you here today, but if somebody brought you here today telling you that once you accept Jesus as your Savior, like everything makes sense. They lied to you. They lied to you. I'm glad you're here, but they didn't tell you the truth because it doesn't always make sense. He doesn't reveal it all to us. I always think back to Corey Ten Boom. There's a story about how her dad, she was asking her dad questions about some stuff, and, and he knew that she was not ready to, to hear the answer to that. And so he would say to her, Corey, go over there and pick up my suitcase in the corner. And she would run over there and try to pick it up. It's too heavy. And she'd run back, and he's like, when you're old enough to pick up that suitcase and carry it to me, then you'll be ready to understand. And I think God does that in our lives, right? I think we get little glimpses. That's what I love about, like, Joanna's story. She, she, she over the course, I mean, God will keep doing it. I know he will. I know he will. But she's got little glimpses of what he's doing in the midst of all the pain that they've been going through. Little glimpses. Not the full suitcase. She can't handle that. It's too much. But he gives us just enough. Well, listen, I wish I had great plans for chapter 10. Um, but again, we, we need, all need to go to the bathroom at some point. And so we're not going to go over chapter 10. But I encourage you to go read it. I encourage you to take time with it. Um, because he has something to say over the course of all those verses. But we're going to finish with this thought. We're going to finish with this. That wisdom is a person. Wisdom is a person. Have you ever thought about life that way? 
We're chasing wisdom, right? We hear Solomon saying that he wants to be this man, or, or, or he is this man, remembered for being the wisest man ever because he asked God and God gave it to him and he used that wisdom. And there are moments, right, amen? But, but ultimately we see and we hope that through these words we can see that he took this life and he applied wisdom to this life. But here's what I found interesting as I was thinking through wisdom and I was reading, I was, Lord, how do you want to wrap this thing up for us? This man, the wisest man ever, wrote this book, this wisdom literature that essentially feels like philosophy a lot of the time. How do you want to wrap it up? And it was with this. It was 1 Corinthians 1.24. I don't even know if I've ever even paid attention to this verse, quite honestly. And it goes like this. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see, the ultimate power of God and wisdom of God is a guy. He's a guy that God said, this is my son, and I'm going to send him down to earth, and I'm going to give him flesh, John 1.14. And he's going to walk around on this earth, and he's going to encounter all this stuff, all the stuff that we read about. It wasn't like Jesus was like in this Jesus bubble over here just being godly. No, he was being godly. Let me clarify. But he lived life. He saw pain. He endured sadness. He cried tears. He reached out to people who were broken. He cried out to God for rescue, and God said, no. Jesus came to earth as the Son of God, but he was fully a man. He took on flesh. Luke 2.52, you know what that one says? It says this, as he was growing up. We don't know a ton about when he was a kid, but you know what we do know? That he grew in what? Wisdom. He grew in wisdom. And then Proverbs 30, 1 through 4, reminds us that he is the answer to our limited knowledge. All these things, our limited understanding of things, there is one answer to it, and it is wisdom through Jesus Christ. He came because we can't go up to God. Let me be clear. We can't get our way up there, so he came down here. Amen? It's wise. Christ will set all things right. Solomon, even in the end of his book, if you'll remember, and we read it in the very beginning, do you remember? Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says this, the very end of the book that we began with, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, all these things that Solomon toiled with and wrestled with and fights with and struggles with, all the same things that we do, right? We still do, even though we're on this side of Jesus. We still understand so many of his words. We still understand all his questions, right? But the difference is we are on this side of the Savior, he came to set it right. We need to fear God, and that means we trust him. We trust him to be God and to not let us be God because we're real bad. Oh, let me say, you're real terrible at being God, super terrible at it. You should quit. It's a terrible thing. We fear him. We let him be God, and then we do what he says. And you know what? He says stuff like this. Oh, next semester, it's going to be so fun. He says stuff like this. Love God, love people. He says that kind of stuff. That's the stuff we do. 
We make it so complicated. So in closing, you got your little diverse hearts or whatever, you know, little crazy little hearts, right? Everybody got one. We've got a guest list of people that need to understand this. You have been, you've gotten Jesus all washed up all over you through the words of Solomon for whatever, how many weeks? 11 weeks, right? You got people in your world that are not getting that. I'll never forget, um, it was when when we were doing Psalms, we had, one of our stories was, and I can't remember her name, I hate that I don't remember her name, but we had this amazing woman come and she had grown up in a Muslim world and she now is is, is is a believer and she goes around and speaks and talks to people about who Jesus is. And you know what she said? And I told our leaders this yesterday, and it just stays with me, and I carry it with me because it broke my heart. She said this, I lived in America. I was an American citizen for like 14 years before anybody told me who Jesus was. I thought he was like Santa Claus. I mean, they, they bring him out when it's convenient, and, and, and people wear crosses and stuff, but I don't. I didn't really understand who he was. And then one day, as she was dressed in her Muslim garb, right? Everybody probably shuns and looks away. I don't want to. And this woman embraced her and touched her and hugged her. And she said, that's when she knew Jesus was real. Not when she started spouting out words. I mean, she did that. She took her to church. Not when she started doing the things, but when she said that she loved her and she saw her and she touched her, that's when she knew Jesus was real. The rest of it was semantics. So, this. Who is your neighbor? Who is your person? Who are the people that you're going to bring? Because here's the thing. um, You may have girls that you think, I have neighbors. I've already been thinking about this. I am ashamed that there are people that live on my street that have no idea who I am or what I believe or what I'm about at all. And I'm ashamed of that because I'm sitting here on the greatest piece of information that could save people for eternity, and I'm not talking about it. So I'm going to ask you to do this. If there's a name, if there's multiple names, and you can just do first names. We're not looking for information. We're not going to go find them. We're asking, well, you should go find them. Go find them, people. Put a name on this heart. Is there somebody that God's put a name on your heart to bring to Bible study? And here's the thing. Like, like Lindsay said, we're going to announce there's a lot of things going on. We're getting worked up. And next week we're going to have registration open. But there's going to be a lot of options. We are giving more options for Bible study at Rock Point Church than we ever have before. Ever. There's, there's potentially going to be three nights and two mornings of women's Bible study. I'm sorry. That's a lot of awesome Bible study time. Who are the people that we need to bring, that we need to tell about Jesus? Who are the people? You don't have to tell them, guys. Like, that'll be all on me. It'll be my problem. But how about you put a hand on them and you say, I like you. I want to hang out with you. You want to come to Bible study with me? We'll go eat at Corner Bakery afterward. Let's do that. Who are the people? Write their names. You can write multiples. You can write one. I don't care what you do, but here's what we're going to do. You are going to write a name. And is there a box back there? Is there a box back there? There's a box back there. You write this name down. You're going to put it in a box, and then we are going to pray over those names. And then next week, you're going to see those names again, and you're going to pray over those names. And we're going to ask God to do a really cool thing. We're going to ask God to give us boldness in inviting people to come hear the greatest story ever told. Right? 
We're not going to save it for ourselves anymore. We are not going to mark people off the guest list. Take your heart, write some names, and then I'm going to pray. Father, you know exactly who we're thinking about. You know what our fears are, and you know where we are in our relationship with you. Um, God, give us boldness, because sometimes boldness just looks like um, putting a hand out. Sometimes boldness just looks like seeing somebody, looking at them in the eyes, listening. Lord, um, this isn't hard. Why are we making it hard? We ask you, Father, to bring people to hear your word in the spring. God, we ask you to show us who you are and what we are to do with the greatest truth that any person could ever, ever come to hear. And we ask your forgiveness that we haven't been the ones to share it with our lives. Lord, change us today. We pray we walk out of here after the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord, and look toward what's next. We thank you, Father, for your son who came to live and to die and then to go back up to heaven on our behalf, God. We could never have approached you without him. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.